As we once again continue in the Gospel of Matthew, looking again at chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, the birth of Christ Jesus, prostitutes and Moabites. Now, if you've been with us over the last couple of weeks as we begin to kind of dip our toe in here to the Gospel of Matthew, as we study the genealogy that's in the beginning of chapter 1, we are looking at the lineage of Jesus Christ according to the flesh. A lineage that is summed up in this manner in verse 17. So that all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Not in any way, but in this way. This particular way. This way that is not nearly as neat and refined as a lot of us would prefer it would be. The birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. As Matthew records, And just as the Lord had declared concerning His Son through the prophet Isaiah seven centuries before in chapter 42 in verses 6 through 9, where He said, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind and bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord and that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass. And new things I now declare, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Last week we considered the fact that the genealogy of Jesus that is given in Matthew chapter 1 begins with Abraham. It doesn't begin with Abraham because other men had not seen a glimpse of or even received the benefits of the promise of Jesus Christ. Men like Adam and Noah and Shem... But instead, the genealogy of Christ, according to the flesh, begins with Abraham because Abraham was the first that God gave understanding to. Understanding of the nature of the promise by which God ordained the promise would grow and flourish. So that 2,000 years after Abraham saw the day of Christ... Paul would write this in Romans chapter 9, verses 4 through 5. They are the Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. And to them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. You know, last week we looked at Jesus speaking about the way that, un- that Abraham understood the promised Christ who was to come. And he told the Jews, contending with them in his day, that the understanding that Abraham had was infinitely more than they gave him credit for. For in John chapter 8, verses 56 through 58... 
Jesus speaks to those he is contending with and says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Not that Abraham rejoiced that he would see it and then one day he finally will, but no, Abraham in his day rejoiced that he would see the day of Christ and he actually did see it and it caused him to exalt and rejoice where you are heaping praise upon praise upon praise. And the Jews wanted to contend with him about this and said, you're nuts. They said, so the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Not before Abraham was, I was, but right now while I'm speaking to you, I am before him. I am moving over the face of the deep. I am calling forth light out of darkness. I am creating Adam out of the dust of the ground and breathing my spirit into him. I'm calling Abraham forth from Ur. I'm sitting in the door of his tent showing him my day. A day that now stands before you as well. Abraham was the first to see the promise in a definitive way. The others heard whispers and rumors, things shrouded in mystery. The seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, but Abraham saw Christ's day. He was the first to see it in a definitive way, but he would not be the last. And so this morning in Matthew chapter 1 and verses 1 through 6, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Solomon, and Solomon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Now, when you look through this genealogy at the very beginning of the book of Matthew, there are some things that you would absolutely expect to see there. I mean, you see Abraham, and you see his son Isaac, and his grandson Jacob, who the Lord would rename Israel, and Judah, and the twelve tribes coming out of Israel. You see a lot of people that you expect to see. But there's at least a couple that you don't. Namely, a Canaanite prostitute and a Moabite widow. And so, after the three patriarchs and the heads of the twelve tribes, here we come. Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, it's going to be an important player later by a woman named Rahab. Now, if you went to Family God Camp last year, you ought to be very familiar with Rahab. We spent a lot of time in the book of Joshua. And we by no means have the time that we had at camp to delve into the deep things of this subject. So we'll just hit the tops of the waves this morning. And for time's sake, we'll end up doing the same thing with Ruth unless we just preach the whole book of Ruth and it takes three months. 
I want to say right off the bat that what you see with these women is not God being soft on sin. What you see is the redemption that is provided in the blood-bought grace of nothing less than Jesus Christ. What you see with these women has nothing to do with keeping the law. Man, they broke the law. It proved them guilty. What you see here is the activity of the promise before the incarnation of Christ. Let's make it clear. The law condemns prostitution. As a matter of fact, in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 28 through 21, prostitution is listed amongst forbidden things with the absolute worst of depravities. In Leviticus chapter 19, it says this, You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute, lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Here in Leviticus, the Lord is giving a list of things that are particularly detestable to them. And in that list is mutilation and ancestor worship, prostitution, the use of mediums and fortune telling, and the use of necromancers, which is literally people that reanimated the dead through the use of demonic spirits. It's a pretty rough list. Scripture forbids prostitution. And yet, in the book of Joshua, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 21, when Israel is getting ready to come into the land proper for the first time, when they are getting ready to begin their westward push in the conquest of the land that has been promised to them now for over 400 years, a land where the Lord says, you go in and you don't intermarry with them, and you don't keep any of them for slaves, and you don't make any treaties with them, you kill them all. Burn their cities. Destroy their livestock. Of these very people, Joshua sends in two spies into their midst to figure out what is going to be going on with the invasion of Jericho. It goes like this. Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go and view the land, especially Jericho. And they went, and they came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come up here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up on the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. And so the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. 
Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, this is an incredibly important conversation. She said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you for the Lord your God. He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I've dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and my brothers and sisters, all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the Minta said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. She let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned, and then afterwards you may go your way. And the men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. And then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in this house... His blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to the oath that you have made us to swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. And then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in her window. If you will recall, back to our study in Romans and in chapter 8, There is a series of absolute statements that are made about the progression of the gospel in the lives of God's children. And it goes like this. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And One of the things we said when we were looking through Romans is there's nowhere to get off the bus. Once that train starts, the Lord is going to bring it to completion. And so there is no one that is predestined that wasn't foreknown, and there is no one that is called that wasn't predestined, and there's no one that's justified that's not called. Have you ever met a Christian that says, I never heard the call of God, but somewhere along the way he justified me? Of course you haven't, because that's not the way it works. The call is the effectual work of the Holy Spirit that draws His people to Him, that they may receive Christ by faith and be justified in their sin before God. It's exactly what you see happening to Rahab. I want you to notice how effectual the call is in her. Everyone in Jericho knows 
what the Lord has been doing with his people Israel. And they've known about it now for four decades. This isn't a new thing to their ear. Forty years ago, they heard and saw the effects of the Lord bringing the world's sole superpower to its knees with a bunch of dusty little slaves. They heard about the parting of the Red Sea and the way that the companies of Pharaoh's chariots were obliterated. They heard about what he did to the Moabite kings east of the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, men of which they were terrified. They had all heard about it and they all feared. She said, our hearts melted within us. Everybody's full of fear. But I would submit to you that the fear that Rahab has is different. Everyone else in Jericho fears what the Lord is going to do to them. And Rahab actually fears the Lord. And there's a difference. Because God has a fear that's not like the fear of men. And when the fear of the Lord that is granted by the Lord comes upon His people, it does not cause them to flee from Him or attempt to usurp His purpose. It causes them to flee to Him and join Him in His purpose. You see, the call is already active in Rahab. Her heart is already being changed. And you can see the difference from the way she reacts and all of the rest of the city reacts. Everybody else is scared going, stop them, stop them, stop them, stop them. And she's going, I'm fearful of the Lord, let's join them. Now, Jericho's walls are not typically what you think of when you kind of have the picture from Sunday school as a kid in your mind of what Jericho looks like, you know, you got this picture, it's like, you know, it looks like a kind of, you see the little cartoon drawings, you know, in, 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 the, in the illustrated Bibles when you're a child, and Jericho always kind of looks like a giant version of the Roman Colosseum, just this big, you know, it's like a giant football stadium, but it's got, you know, rock walls, and there's a city inside of it, and that's not at all what Jericho looked like. Jericho is a, is a tell, it's a, it's a mound, it's a, it's, it's a hill. It just kind of pops up out of the middle of the plain. Big old cone. And it was a dual wall city. And so and they built a lot of these. And so the walls were predominantly backfilled. So they didn't stand up on their own like just some wall, like this wall here stands, for instance. Instead, what they did was they ran around the base of the, base of the hill and they built a wall all the way around it where the backside of the wall was built into the hill. Okay. And you probably had eight or ten foot of freestanding on the top, but these things are huge. And the backside is built into the hill, cut into the stone of the mountain. And then there's a really steep rampart that goes up from there, and the poor people lived on the rampart. And then there's another wall that's built into the hill the same way. And so these walls aren't freestanding, man. There is like just tons and tons of earth and rock that are setting behind them. You're not going to push them over and you're not going to pull them over. As a matter of fact, 
Um, like I said, a lot of these kind of fortifications are built in that part of the world. There was a place in Turkey, um, Gizion Tep. It was built in the second century AD, and it was built in this manner. And it stood for 1,800 years through earthquake and famine and war and everything that you can imagine until that 7.2 earthquake hit a couple of weeks ago. And it looks like an atomic bomb went off on top of it. And she fell. The thing about the nature of these kind of installations is there's never going to be part of this wall fail. It's either all standing up or it's so bad that it's all coming down. All of it except for one little part with one house and a scarlet cord hanging out the window. But before we get there, we have to cover the why this is going to happen. Because it's miraculous. I mean, you guys know the story. Jericho's walls crumble and fall, all except for one little spot where Rahab's house is. Why? Because Jesus Christ doesn't simply have the Canaanite prostitute Rahab in his lineage. Before Rahab was, he is. And Jesus is not only involved with, but he is right smack in the middle. He is the reason for Jericho. And so right before the battle proper ensues, we find Joshua in chapter 3, in chapter 5, outside the walls of Jericho, considering the task that lays before him. And from a pragmatic standpoint, he is in over his head, man. He has got the descendants of a bunch of slaves that have been wandering around as nomads in the desert for the last 40 years. He has no siege engines. He has no trebuchets. He has no ability to assault a place that, as far as his technology concerned, is basically impregnable. And as he's considering these things, in verse 13 of chapter 5, it says, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? Man, there's some great dialogue in Joshua. This is one of the great ones. And the way that he responds ought to instantly give you a hint to who the man is. Because this is the way he responds half the time when he's contending with the Jews and the Pharisees and the Sadducees during his earthly ministry. Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said to him, No. Boy, you don't even know what you're dealing with. Am I for you? Am I for your adversaries? In a couple hundred years, I will tell Isaiah, I am God and I give my glory to no other. The question is, are you for me? No. Think I deal with such paltry things as these? No. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord and now I have come. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, 
What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, we did this at camp. I'm not going to do it this morning because I don't have time. But it would be fun if you want to do it in your own time. You ought to exegete this out. You know who this is? The commander of the Lord's army is nothing less than Jesus Christ himself. We know this for a couple of different reasons. One, because he's called the commander of the Lord's army. Number two, because he allows a human being to worship him, which you will never one single time find an angel allowing to happen. Every time some human gets ahead of themselves and decides they need to drop down and start worshiping the angels, they always say the same thing. Get up, we serve the same God you do. Worship belongs to the Lord and to the Lord alone. Furthermore, his presence makes the very place he stands holy, set apart other than indifferent. Jesus Christ is right up in the middle of what's happening at Jericho. He's right up in the middle in what's happening with Rahab because he is the reason that it's all happening. And therefore, what you see with the coming of Christ is always judgment and salvation. Which is exactly what you will see in Jericho. In Joshua chapter 6 verse 20, it says, So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat. So that all the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city, and they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. And so the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household and all belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. And so, when Jesus Christ shows up outside the walls of Jericho, you can expect two things. You can expect supernatural judgment. And you can expect supernatural redemption. When a wall that can only stay or fall, falls except for one little part. The prostitute's house on top, and I don't think I have to take too much of an exegetical jump to tell you why there is a scarlet cord hanging out the window. The color of the blood that is bought her, that binds her like a fetter to a promise that's bigger than any Canaanite wall or pagan demigod. But it is not simply, it's not simply 
Rahab. It's also Ruth. The Moabites. And much like we would look to the nature of prostitution in, um, in the law, so too the law speaks to marriage to unbelievers. And in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, it says that when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, give your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their Asherim and burn their carved images with fire. The law specifically forbid the intermarrying of God's people with unbelievers. Scripture still forbids it to this day. This is not something that was testimonial amongst the people of Israel. This is reflective of the holy nature of an unchanging God. It was forbidden then, it's forbidden now. Paul says it like this to the Corinthians in his second letter in chapter 6. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them. And walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. God commands this not because he likes putting burdensome rules upon his people, but because of the nature of his holiness and the way he's drawing his own people in redemption and sanctification to that holiness. And he says, you are fundamentally different. It's what holy means. Literally means other than. You are other than all of the rest that is around you. And so don't mingle with them because it's not you. Guys, when we are preaching to ourselves about personal holiness and sanctification, when we're teaching our children about personal holiness and sanctification, the way to approach this is not do this and don't do that. The way to approach it is know who you are and then be who you are. Go be that. Don't simply ask the question, should I or shouldn't I? Ask yourself, who are you? And if you're his, then you're holy and you're set apart. Depart from their midst. Scripture makes no bones about it. The people of the Lord have no business being bound together in marriage with someone who does not belong to his kingdom. 
This would certainly apply to Moabites. As a matter of fact, we were talking earlier out in the hall, and I said, you know, I was telling David and Jim, I said, if you, if you had to take your pick, you know, if you had to make kind of the devil's choice, and they said, okay, here's the deal. We're going to rewind you back to about 1100 B.C., and uh, you're going to have a choice to make. And you either get to spend the night sleeping with one eye open in the house of a Canaanite prostitute in Jericho or in the house of a Moabite in Moab. I think I'm going with the Canaanite prostitute. The Moabites were dirty, dirty business folks. Their patron god, Chemosh, was set apart amongst a very rare breed in the Old Testament as being a particularly nasty demon. In second in first Kings chapter eleven, verse six through eight, it says, So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem, and so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. Now, the word abomination doesn't get thrown around a whole lot in Scripture, it's, but when it's there, it has a very particular impact. And so here you see, you know, of all these deities that get spoken of, of Baal and Asherah and all of these different ones, man, here you've got these two that are set apart. It's Chemosh and Molech, and they're both identified as being particular abominations. And you have to ask yourself, Why? And if you study it out in Scripture, what you'll find is the reasons that they were particularly abominable to the Lord, not just in general rebellion, but in a way that drew his particular ire, is because the worship of these demons was associated with child sacrifice. As a matter of fact, in 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 26 through 27, It says that when the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. And then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath wrath against Israel, and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. That's the Moabites for you. When the battle was turning poorly against their sorcerer king, and he threw the best pragmatic response at it that he could come up with, and that didn't work, then the next thing that crossed his wicked heart was, I will take my son and my heir and sacrifice him in public as a burnt offering on the city wall. These are the type of people that you're dealing with in Moab. We need to get that in our head. Because Ruth is a beautiful story. It's a beautiful story of redemption. But I think that it's often, I think Ruth is, in a lot of the commentaries, 
is approached well once you get into the book. But she often gets painted as, well, she's a Moabite, she was a pagan, she was outside of the people of Israel, but it was all she ever grew up with and it was all she ever knew. And God showed redemptive grace to her in bringing this family into her life. Guys, if you don't understand how evil these people were, then the beauty of the redemption is shallower than it should be. Ruth was not some sweet kid. These people are the vilest of depravity. And yet, the story of Ruth's redemption doesn't begin in Moab. Coincidentally enough, or actually not coincidentally at all, it begins in Bethlehem. Because Jesus is just right up in the middle of all this. And so in Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. A man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Imelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malhon and Chilion, and they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons, and these took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth, and they lived there about ten years, and both Mahlon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. In the midst of this crisis, nobody likes crisis. But God often uses it for incredible good. In the midst of this crisis, we see that same effectual call coming from God into Ruth's life that we saw come into Rahab's life. Where all of a sudden she began to feel and think differently than she had felt and thought before, that she was feeling and thinking differently than her contemporaries that were around her. In verse 6 it says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law and returned from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. And so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way and returned to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go and return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will, not, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. 
And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Okay, so here you have a situation where you probably have some societal standards that are in play, but you also definitely have some genuine affection between these three women. And so they go with her a certain amount of, of, of distance, and she says, okay, this is not pragmatic, this is not going to work, and you, you need to just go home. That's what's going to be best for you. I can't provide for you. There's definitely some desperation there. She says her heart is exceedingly bitter. And they both say, oh, no, we'll stay. They both give the good testimony in their words. But then Orpah goes back. And she goes back because as much affection as she has for Naomi, she's still a Moabite. And Moabite's going to Moabite. But Ruth isn't. She said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. At that point in time, she just gave the good testimony that Chemosh was no longer her God, that Yahweh was her God, and that she was no longer a Moabite. She's not an Israelite either. She is a Hebrew. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. And where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Now, as is often the case, what the Lord has wrought spiritually will now be testified to physically. We do this every time we have someone born again. What do you do? You give the good confession. You give verbal testimony of your salvation. And then you crawl into the water and you give physical testimony of your salvation through baptism. But the verbal testimony is not what saved you, and the water is not what saved you. It was God that saved you, and that thing becomes spiritually real. Then we have testimony that flows out of that. And so here's Naomi, and her God is no longer Chemosh, and she is no longer a Moabite. She's proclaimed it to Ruth, and it is about to be manifest in an incredibly beautiful picture of redemption that comes out of the law. For the law, always pointing towards Christ, had founded within it the idea of a kinsman redeemer. One that would come out of the same house and redeem to himself the widow of his kinsman. In the third chapter of Ruth, and you guys probably know the narrative about Ruth and Boaz and gleaning the grain. We're not going to go into all that this morning. Let's just say that the Lord caused him to take notice. How about that? And in chapter 3, in verse 1, it says, Naomi and her mother-in-law, then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, 
Should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, and with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies, and then go and uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. And so she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. What's racy stuff, isn't it? Uncovered his feet and lay down. And at midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. It may not be racy stuff by today's standards, but it is some incredibly gutsy stuff. But we don't have time this morning. A woman lay at his feet, and he said, Who are you? And she said, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings. In the Hebrew, literally spread the corner, the, the wings of your garment over me. Spread your wings over your servants, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after younger men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do all that you have asked. Now, This is one of those things where we've got some cultural divide here. And so to us, it looks just kind of a little awkward and a little odd. You know, he's working all through the night trying to get his barley winnowed out. They've had the harvest. It's finished. He's trying to get the stuff winnowed. He's trying to get it in the barns. He's worked all night. He gets his belly full. He's tired. He's happy. He takes a nap. She comes down, uncovers his feet, lays there, and then says, spread your wings over me. Spread the corner of your garment over me. For I know that you're a redeemer. And you're like, what is going on with that? What's going on with that is Jesus Christ is right up in the middle of Ruth. What's going on with that is Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. What's going on with that is this is the way that the Lord describes that He brings His bride to Himself and saves His people. In Ezekiel chapter 1, 16, verse 1, Again the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations, and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites, and your father was an Amorite and your mother was a Hittite. Or in this case, your father and mother were Moabites. And as for your birth, on the day that you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you to do any of these things for you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were aboard on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. 
I said to you in your blood, live, and I made you flourish like the plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, and yet you were naked and bare. And when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment. It's the exact same phrase in the Hebrew that's used in the book of Ruth. I spread my wings over you. Covered your nakedness made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. You became mine. Christ is all over Rahab. Christ is all over Ruth. You know what the law says you do with a prostitute? You stone them. You know what the law says when you come into the cities of the Canaanites? What you do with them? You put them all to the sword. As a matter of fact, it goes out of its way to say the man, the woman, the old, the infirm, and the infant in the crib. Kill them all. You know what you do with Moabites? You put them to the sword. You say, I thought God was not a man that he should lie and not the son of man that he would change his mind. Sure, like looks like he made an exception with Rahab and Ruth. No, he didn't. By the time the sword arrived, she was no longer a Canaanite. She was no longer a Moabite. Oh, that might have been who her mother and her father was. But it's not who they were anymore. Because the salvation of Jesus Christ is the new creation. It causes to exist that which did not previously exist. You're judged by what you are. And so you go, man, you know, most people look at at, uh, Matthew and chapter 1, and you you look at Rahab and you look at Ruth, they pop right out. Everybody's kind of like, woo, Gentiles, Right? Gentiles, not just in the midst of Israel, but Gentiles in the midst of the lineage of Christ and at some really important spots too. You know, it's wild that Christ would have so much Gentile blood in his lineage since, after all, he himself said, salvation is from the Jews. And if by wild you mean profound, then a hearty amen. But if by wild you mean surprising, then absolutely not. It's not surprising at all. It's always been this way. Now in their pride, the Jews don't want you to know this. (laughs) It's always been this way. After all, Israel left out of Egypt a mixed multitude. It wasn't just the Israelites that left. And in giving the law, over and over, God makes provision for the Gentiles that are in their presence. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 34, the Lord told them, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Rahab was grafted in. Ruth was grafted in. 
All former Gentiles now become something else, but more importantly, so was Abraham. I mean, if we're going to get down to it, let's just go back to the beginning. Let's go back to the first patriarch. Let's go back to the very first person that the Lord said, I'm not just going to tell him that there is a promise, but I'm going to show him what the promise actually is. I'm going to show him who the promise is. I'm going to let him see the day of Christ that he might rejoice. So the very first one, here it is, Father Abraham, who had many sons. He didn't come from Jerusalem. He didn't come from Bethlehem. He didn't come from Shiloh. Abraham came straight out of Ur. You go, where is Ur? Ur is in the land of the Chaldeans. The land of Abraham's lineage and his fathers. In Genesis chapter 11, in verse 27, now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. And Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred. So it's not just that he's sojourning there or living there, but this is the land of their kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abraham and Nahor took wives. Or Abram and Nahor took wives. And the name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah. And the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Ischa. And now Sarai was barren and she had no child. And Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran his grandson. And Sarai his daughter-in-law his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Cana. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Abraham, before the name change, was Abram. He was not born a Jew. He was not born an Israelite. He was born a Chaldean. You know, who are the Chaldeans? Okay, well, Chaldeans are the, the, the culture and the ethnic group. They would later form a very famous empire, Babylon. Abraham came out of the same stock that Nebuchadnezzar, the most evil man on the planet, came out of. He came out of the same stock that came against the Lord God of Israel and sieged Jerusalem and burned it to the ground. Straight out of Ur. Now, if you want to stack up, if you want to stack up ethnic insults that an Old Testament Israelite could throw at someone. While Canaanite's bad and Moabite's worse, there will be no insult worse than Babylonian. It reverberated so hard in its spiritual reality that it was still being referred to in the prophecies of the New Testament. Abraham was born a Chaldean. There weren't any Jews. There weren't any Israelites. 
Abraham was never a Jew. We'll talk about why in a minute. Well, let's just do it now. Abraham was never a Jew because Jew means of the tribe of Judah. It is not until his great-grandsons are born that there is a Judah to be a tribe of. Abraham was not an Israelite. For Israelite means son of Israel, son of Jacob. And Abraham was dead before Jacob was ever Israel. Abraham wasn't a Jew and he wasn't an Israelite. Abraham was a Hebrew. And he was the first one that's ever called by name in any of Scripture. It's in Genesis 14, verses 11 through 13. We sing about it. One of the songs that the choir master wrote, we are crossed over once. And so in Genesis chapter 14 and verses 11 through 13, speaking of the war against the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, it says, So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went on their way. And they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, excuse me, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and they went their way. And then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew. The, 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 the Hebrew here, the Hebrew for Hebrew. The Hebrew for Hebrew is the Biru. It means crossed over one. Former Chaldean. Now not Abraham the Chaldean or Abraham the former Chaldean, but Abraham the crossed over one. One who had escaped came and told Abram, the crossed over one, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Iskol and of Aner. These were the allies of Abram. Now, if you've got one of those Bibles that has the lines across the page with all the uninspired commentary below the line at the bottom, um, I would always recommend that while that can be helpful, that you should never look at it as the inspired Word of God. This is one of the places that you see a lot of error there. A lot of commentaries you'll look at and say, okay, man, here's Hebrew. The first time it's ever mentioned in Scripture, it's going to become a big deal. What does Hebrew mean? Hebrew means crossed over one. And they go, okay, well, why would you call Abram the crossed over one? And they say, well, it was because when he moved out of Ur to the land of Canaan, he had to cross the Euphrates River. And so he became the crossed over one because he crossed the river. Okay, that is a ridiculous statement that is not based in anything historical. That's like talking about the Needles Eye Gate in Jerusalem. That was this little gate that the camels had to get down on their hands and knees and crawl. Well, do they have hands on their knees and crawl through? Somebody made it up some at some point in time, and it just stuck. People started repeating it. And now everybody thinks it's true, guys. This was one of the most technologically advanced societies on the planet at the time. They all crossed rivers a lot. Not only that, not only did they all cross rivers a lot, especially the Euphrates, since it's one of the most important commercial rivers on the planet, not only do they all cross rivers a lot, but the Euphrates, under normal flow conditions, is never so wide that you can't drive a golf ball across it. Now, I cross the bridge to go to Van Buren the other day across a river that you can't drive a golf ball across and nobody changed my name. It didn't change my race. It didn't change my ethnicity. It didn't change my identity. But whatever Abraham crossed over changed his. He was no longer Abram the Chaldean. 
He was Abraham the Hebrew. It would define an entire race of people before the label Israelite or Jew even existed. He was the crossed over one because Jesus Christ was all up in the middle of Abraham. And he crossed him over from life to death. From not having the promise to having the promise. From not being able to see the day of Christ to having been promised that he would see it. And then actually seeing it and exalting God for what he did. Man, he was in the middle of Ruth. The former Moabite become Hebrew. He was in the middle of Rahab. The former Canaanite prostitute become Hebrew. He was in the middle of Abraham from the very beginning, calling forth the Babylonian dog out of Ur and saying, I'm going to make you something different. I will be your God. You will be my people and I will bless the whole world through you. The crossed over one. He made him something more than he was. He showed him a definitive picture of the promise. And so when it comes to the genealogy of Jesus Christ according to the flesh, the man that it starts with, it starts with not because of his flesh, but about what God did in him through the Spirit. In Romans chapter 4, Paul says it works like this. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? You know, I got some, uh, my, my, uh, uh, my, uh, my stepmom likes the genealogy stuff, right? So, um, so she, she, dad bought her some stuff. You know, they got all this online stuff now. Bought her some, some you know, um, subscriptions to use different stuff a couple years ago for Christmas. And she did a whole bunch of stuff. And so much of that's already been done. If you can get a couple of decent links back to some places, you can find out a lot of stuff. Found out a lot of cool stuff. Found out uh, that uh, my 13th great-grandfather signed the Mayflower Compact. That's neat. Um, had a guy that was some kind of big agricultural scientist back around the mid-1800s. Um, had some, uh, some slaves in there somewhere. Probably where I got the nose. Um, some moonshiners. I already knew about them. They, uh, one of them was recently enough ago that, uh, um, <laughs> that, uh, um, that uh, my great grandmother knew him, and he swore that he would uh, he would die before he ever let him send him back to a state pen. Of course, this would have been during prohibition. I'm sure it was rougher then than it even is now. A couple slave traders in there too. Isn't that unfortunate? You think back on your lineage. You look far enough, you're going to find some dirty business. Every one of us. It's funny that when you start talking about the lineage of Christ, people find it uncomfortable and odd 
that this sort of stuff would be here. We haven't even got to the really dicey stuff yet. That's in a couple of weeks. Friends, Jesus Christ saves sinners, and he doesn't save them through the means of their flesh. For whatever reason, and it, well, we know why. It's because of the scourge of dispensationalism. There is this thought amongst Christians that it was all flesh and works up until the cross, and then it became grace. And even if we wouldn't agree to that statement in, in theory, we still have a tendency to apply it in the way that we act in the way that we look at certain things that we see happening in Scripture, because it's been ingrained in us for some of us since we were little. And the fact of the matter is, it's always, from the very beginning, never been anything different than what it is right now, and that is the grace of God through the gift of faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. It was always that. It was always... Jesus Christ, whether at the oaks of Mamre with Abraham, calling him forth out of Ur, whether it was standing outside the walls of Jericho going, everything's coming down and they all die except for her. She's mine. Whether it's Boaz testifying to Christ spreading the corner of his robe over a former Moabite come Hebrew. It's always been the grace of God and it has always been by the means of faith, which is why Paul says it this way, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? You look back at your family tree and you tell me what was gained according to the flesh. What was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham is justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessings of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord would not count his sin. Now I ask you, do you want to have a squeaky clean genealogy? And try to stand on that? Or do you want to have one full of prostitutes and Moabites and get to say, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven? Those whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count as sin. If it was sufficient for Christ to use to bring about his earthly lineage, it is sufficient for me and you. If that grace was sufficient enough to ensure that from the moment the promise came to Abraham that he would take one vile sinner after another and from everywhere, from, from Moab, from the Canaanites, from Ur, from the Israelites, and from the Jews, and make them Hebrew, make them crossed over once. If that was sufficient to provide for him, why would it not be sufficient to provide for you and for me? 
Is the blessing then only for the circumcised or also from the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but also who walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. You know what the difference between the grace of God to Rahab the prostitute and Ruth the Moabite, you know what the difference is between the grace that was given to them and the grace that was given to Isaac was? The difference is those that view it from outside. The difference is us. The difference is because of our flesh and our cultural upbringing, it's easier to see the depravity in Rahab and in Ruth than it is to see in Isaac. But I promise you that God sees the darkness of their sin and iniquity the same. We say, oh, it's, we can really glorify God in Rahab and in and, 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 and Ruth because we can see the depravity. We can see how far he went to get him. He went just as far to get Isaac. It was the same cross. It was the same nails. It was the same forgive them. They know not what they do. It was the same as the sheep before its shears is silent. It was the same wrath of God that was satisfied. There has never been, you can be born a Jew and you can be born an Israelite. There has never been a natural born Hebrew ever. You can't be crossed over unless there was something that you crossed over from. Jesus Christ is in the middle of his own genealogy. Shaping it, molding it, lovingly caring for his people in order to bring about the very thing that he promised. Which is why we said last week, you see the miracle of salvation in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because as Isaac said to Jacob, the only way that you can get the land and the lineage that is the means to arrive at the Christ is to already have the Christ. And I would tell you that if he would save Abram, the Chaldean, so that he would not die a Babylonian, if he would save Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, so that she would not die a Canaanite prostitute, he would save Ruth, 
the Chemosh-worshipping Moabite so that she would not die a Chemosh-worshipping Moabite, that he will save you. The means is always the same. It's always faith by which the grace of God comes to us. And I beseech you today to place your faith in Jesus Christ. You can always come forward. That's fine, but you don't have to, man. There's nothing in here that says you need a carpeted step. Man, place your faith in Christ. You will find Him to be faithful.